Matthew 13. Now, uh, I'm going to ask you if you're able to uh, to stand with us and, and be thankful because literally verse 2 in this passage talks about the fact that when the crowds gathered uh, down by the sea, it says they stood on the beach. So they stood the whole time Jesus preached. I'm only going to make you stand about 12 minutes. Amen. <laughs> so, Matthew 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil." But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their ears and hear with their see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and in another thirty. Let's pray. Father, we pray today that, God, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see that, Father, we would... Uh, be responsive to the seed of the Word of God, that it'll be planted deep within our hearts and that we will in turn take uh, that seed and share it with others around us. So Father, we pray all this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, to give you a little backdrop here, you have to understand that it literally starts off at verse 1 saying, that same day. So what's occurring here is this is following the very day that Jesus had addressed the religious leaders. Uh, they had gathered around. Remember, they were trying to uh, literally to trip him up. They were asking for a sign. Uh, they accused him of being a blasphemer. 
And all of this is occurring on the exact same day. So I need you, if you would, for just a moment, I need you to kind of just visualize for a second. Jesus is there. He's in the town of Capernaum. This is his base of operation. Uh, this is where Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew, uh, they had all been called to, to follow Jesus. This is a fishing village right on the Sea of Galilee. It is there that he is in a house that's, that's probable, we don't know for sure, but quite probably uh, Peter's house. Uh, Simon Peter did, we know from Scripture, have a house there. And it was probably a, a little larger because we know from Scripture he did have a wife because he had a mother-in-law. So probably had a little bit more room. We don't know 100%, but it seems that uh, quite often the ministry did run in and out of his house. <laughs> So it tells us that Jesus leaves the house and he goes down by the sea. So the Sea of Galilee, he's gathered down there. Remember, all this commotion's been going on, right? So he's kind of getting a little bit away from everything that's happening in the house, around the, around the village. Remember the very end of chapter 12, even Jesus' mom and his brothers had came to him. Uh, they were not able to get in to see him. He, he uh, talks about who his, who his mother and brothers and sisters are. So he's now down by the sea. And I need you to kind of visualize this, okay? He's sitting down along the sea, uh, up along the, there's kind of like these rolling hills as you stand at the Sea of Galilee and you kind of stand there next to Capernaum. These hills just kind of pan out across. So it becomes, it's a very natural amphitheater. So if I stand down there to the Sea of Galilee, uh, your voice actually really projects greatly. Now, Jesus is God, so I mean his voice is going to go wherever he wanted it to go. But even just for you and I, it's pretty amazing how far just the littlest things we say will echo out from that point. So he's there, and the crowds, it says, have kind of gathered around him, and they are literally standing there on the beach. So much so that as they kind of start to press in, he gets in a boat, pushes a little bit out into the sea, so he can even have a greater vantage point uh, to proclaim this message. So he's been speaking predominantly to this religious crowd, this religious leaders who've been trying to trip him up and cause all these issues. Now his disciples and some of the other followers, they've gathered around him, and he's going to start teaching them here in this passage what is called a parable. We have not had that yet in Matthew's gospel. This is the first time it's recorded that he starts to teach them in parables. Uh, and throw, so what I want to do is just take a few minutes just so you can understand what a parable is. Uh, the shortest definition is very simply that a, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now, a parable literally means to cast alongside. And I'll share a quote in a minute that will help you as well to understand this. To cast alongside something else. So Jesus' parables were stories that were cast alongside a specific truth in order to illustrate, to help even more uh, for that truth to be understood. Uh, his parables were, in essence, teaching age, teaching aids. Anybody here still use a flannel graph? Anybody? Anybody know what a flannel graph? Right? It's not the Sunday you just wear flannel with cool shoes to church, right? That's not a flannel graph. Bill, Bill, Bill is a walking, talking flannel graph, by the way. <laughs> anyway. But they're, but A, I'm pretty, they're going to come back because everything ultimately comes back around, right? It does. And they're the coolest things, right? Flannel graphs actually work. They still are used uh, quite extensively around the world because you have to visually actually, you know, in many cases when there's, when there's a language barrier used to share the gospel. So it is a good thing. So Jesus here is, is teaching these parables. Now here's, a, a, here's a, a John MacArthur, John MacArthur says, I think this will help us a little bit. Uh, the, the root word is parable, P-A-R-A-B-O-L-E. 
which means parable, so there's the Greek. And it is a compound word made up of a form of the verb, balo, okay, which means to throw or to lay or to place. And the prefix, para, uh, which means alongside. If you think of a paralegal, if you think of a paramilitary or parachurch, they, are all, uh, they, they all come alongside and help, right? Paramilitary comes alongside the military, parachurch, so on. So it says the idea is that of placing or laying something alongside of something else for the purpose of comparison. A spiritual or moral truth would often be expressed by laying it alongside, so to speak, a physical example that could be more easily understood. A common observable object or practice was used to illustrate a subjective truth or principle. That which was well known was laid alongside that which was not known or understood in order to explain it. The known elucidated the unknown. So we know through uh, the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are at least 35 parables. Here in this chapter of Matthew, chapter 18, there are seven or eight, depending on how you count. Okay, So this is really kind of the start of a third section uh, within the Gospel of Matthew uh, that Jesus himself is going to kind of uh, you know, deliver a sermon. Uh, it started with the Sermon on the Mount, okay, that great sermon in Matthews 5 through 7. Then in Matthew 10, uh, we see Jesus calling his disciples, so we see uh, him calling those who come to follow him. <coughs> and now you could, in essence, call this the Sermon by the Sea, but it's the start of these parables that Jesus is going to share. Now, he talks about the purpose of the parables there in verse 10. Uh, the disciples uh, ask Jesus, say, uh, you know, they come to him and say, why do you speak then in parables? And he then is going to talk about to you that has been given to know the secrets, or the word there is the same for mysteries in the Greek, of the kingdom of heaven, but to them that has not been given. So the Pharisees knew, at least from a, uh, from a, you know, from a, a mental picture, they had heard the truth. Okay? They knew the law. They had memorized the vast majority of the law. They knew that God was going to send forth a Messiah. But they had missed Jesus. But here, these disciples, and in many cases, we know that these men that were right there in Capernaum, at least four were fishermen, very common, ordinary men. Uh, even in Acts, it will speak to the fact that the majority of the disciples were untrained or even uneducated. They were very common men that God, in his infinite sovereign wisdom, had called to follow him, and they were following Christ. He didn't go and, and grab the ones that were the most learned, the ones that had uh, been out and, and memorized all the textbooks because they had missed Jesus. So Jesus is even now going to use these parables to further illustrate the truth of his word. But he says that even those same religious leaders are not going to get it. But for those faithful followers, those disciples, they will be even more enlightened to understand the truths of the gospel. And he will go and quote here. He talks about the fact that he says, uh, it, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And he says, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And he will quote from Isaiah 6. And if you uh, understand Isaiah 6, this is the, the vision Isaiah has. He sees the Lord high and exalted. And where Isaiah comes to the, to the realization of the holiness of God. 
And so he uh, commits to God in, in verse 8 of Isaiah. We're not going to have it on the screen, but if you want to turn to Isaiah 6, you can read this. It says in verse 8, uh, Isaiah says, And I heard the voice of the Lord, Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then he said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say this to the people. And then Jesus is going to quote here this part of Isaiah 6. Only it's a very interesting passage because it's not exactly uh, what you would think God would be sending the prophet Isaiah to go and tell. And if you, and I want to read this from Isaiah real quick. He says, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. I mean, he is sending Isaiah to deliver this message that says, hey, for all of you religious folks out there, you can check all the boxes. You've done all this church stuff. Listen, you're, gonna, you're not going to understand the truth. Your, your, your ears are not going to hear. Your eyes are not going to see. And if anything, your heart is going to become even more hardened. And so it's not exactly in a very encouraging word. Isaiah is never going to be mislabeled the encouraging prophet. Because he literally is delivering God's message that, look, I'm kind of tired of dealing with your rebellious spirit, your turning against, and I'm going to deal with this. And Isaiah is proclaiming the word of the Lord that the people needed to hear. But it's not exactly encouraging. So Jesus here quoting Isaiah is saying, hey, for these religious leaders, they're not going to understand the truth. And see, there's a lot of religious people in church, even today. They've been in church all their life, and they know enough to be dangerous, but they do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Their relationship is not based on faith alone and Christ alone by grace alone. It still has some level of works attached to it, some level of something that, that, that you and I could somehow do. But Jesus is making this very clear that salvation is all of God. Amen? Amen? All of God. So here, the sower, as we get into this parable, is Jesus. The sower is Jesus, and the gospel message is the seed. He talks about the, uh, the word of the kingdom. So that is what he's proclaiming. And he's going to talk about these four types of soils here in this passage. Each of these soils is ultimately representing uh, a heart condition. Uh, we all have a heart condition. So each of these soils is going to be a way to understand how sometimes the gospel uh, doesn't penetrate into certain hearts. This is what um, Charles Spurgeon wrote about this particular passage. He says, The preacher of the gospel is like the sower. He does not make his seed. It is given him by his divine master. <clears throat> no man could create the smallest grain that ever grew upon the earth, much less the celestial seed of eternal life. The minister goes to his master in secret and asks him to teach him his gospel. And thus he fills his basket with the good seed of the kingdom. He then goes forth in his master's name and scatters precious truth. If he knew where the best soil was to be found, perhaps he might limit himself to that which had been prepared by the plow of conviction. But not knowing men's hearts, it is his business to preach the gospel to every creature, to throw a handful on the hardened heart and another on the mind which is overgrown with the cares and pleasures of the world. He has to leave the seed in the care of the Lord who gave it to him. 
for he is not responsible for the harvest. He is only accountable for the care and industry with which he does his work. If no single ear should ever make glad the reaper, the sower will be rewarded by his master if he had planted the right seed with careful hand. It's a great reminder that we are called to simply share the truth. We cannot produce the harvest. And there are people who do try to produce a harvest. Uh, they manipulate people. And we need to understand that it is only by God's Spirit drawing us to Himself that we can be saved. And He talks here specifically about uh, the fact that we need to sow generously, though. Understand that in this day and time, uh, the farmer had, would have planted seed a little different than we do. Now, I want you to envision this. Again, you're standing there by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is, is, is preaching. Jesus is delivering this sermon. And although we don't see it in Scripture, um, and even that it's possible, maybe he did see a farmer. Maybe there was a farmer on the hill somewhere planting. But as he looked out across these fields, he would have seen these grain fields are all over. As you go there today, you can, you can you know, skip through the grain fields and uh, frolic around and all that. Okay, So this part of the landscape hasn't changed. But as Jesus is looking out here, and so he gives this parable, these folks that are standing there would have understood that the farmer in that day would have just had his sack, he would have had his seed, and he would have just gone out and thrown his seed before he actually prepared the soil. It's not like today where you would go out and you would plow the ground and you would get your tiller or your tractor out and you'd work for days or weeks to make sure that the soil and, and everything is just right. You know, you would put things down, you'd make sure that the thorns or the thistles or any weeds, all that had been removed. None of that occurred before he actually planted the seed. The seed was thrown out, and then later he would come back and he would plow in the seed. Now, I don't know. I mean, Israel is the fertile crescent, okay? And it's amazing what really does grow in that soil. I mean, God's God's whole thing that he was going to, you know, provide this land full of milk and honey. I mean, it is the most fertile soil in the world. It's unbelievable what grows there. It's just because God said it, that settles it. Amen? It doesn't matter. Maybe they have good farming techniques, but it really doesn't matter because God's the one who said it. So that's the reason it grows so well. So that's what would have been happening. And as he threw this seed out, we're going to see the four different soils that the seed would have fallen on. All right. The first we see is the pathway. As the farmer would have walked in and out and up and down the fields, he would have created pathways where he would have kind of beaten down the path a little bit. And so the soil there would have certainly been would have been hardened. There was really nowhere for uh, the seed to even penetrate into the soil. So it says this kind of individual has a heart. This would be what we would consider a hardened heart. A heart which is hard and narrow, similar to this beaten down path across the field. Uh, this path has been trodden down and hardened and narrowed by the traffic of, uh, of people crossing it regularly. Now, if you've ever read uh, C.S. Lewis' screw tape letters, he describes this individual in that uh, in that letter. And so Lewis in Screwtape Letters describes a man who goes into the British Museum and he says he sits down to read certain books that are there. Something he reads suggests to him that a thought about God and he is inspired to think of him. For just a moment it looks as though he is really going to think this idea through. But then Screwtape manages to divert him with the thought that it's time for lunch. 
and that he would be in much better shape to tackle this important subject after he has eaten. And so Screwtape goes on to say this. He goes, once he was in the street, the battle was won. So he's saying that once this individual who had just maybe had just this inkling of thought gets outside, he is no longer going to be interested in the seed. And so this seed falls on this hardened soil. And there's, um, there's, a, there's a great uh, line here I want to read to you. It says that this very verse was the verse used to reach John Bunyan. You know John Bunyan, we speak of him, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, that ultimately led him to Christ. Now, his name at the time, before he came to Christ, was the Old Tinker of Bedford. And that's not Bedford, Virginia. This is uh, Bedford, England. And it says that that blasphemous Old Tinker of Bedford was known as the most godless, not godly, the most godless man in his village and was regarded as so hard-hearted and committed to godlessness that no Christian had any hope for him at all. You imagine that that's, and by the way, can we just be honest with us, each other here? You and I were at one point in that same, in that same boat. He was the least likely, uh, if you know one of C.S. Lewis's works or one of the uh, things he would say regularly was that he was the least likely convert. That if you had known Lewis before he came to faith, you would, you would understand that he would be probably one of the, the least likeliest of people to come to faith in Christ. But he did. And so when it says that when Bunyan heard this story of the sower, and these very words seized his heart. This is what he said to himself. He said, even the devil knows that if a man believes the word, he will be saved. If the man believes the word, the word of God, because the word of God has power. It's a living word. It is active. So that's why we implore people, be reading God's Word. We need to be every day in God's Word and getting God's Word in you. When it's in our heart, it changes the way we live. It changes the way we talk. It changes all of who we are because God's Word does not return void. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So, first seed. Along the pathway. The second seed, it says, falls along the rocky ground. <laughs> it says, where they did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since they had been no depth of the soil. But when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since he had no root, it withered away. So this is the superficial heart. This is the heart that has no actual depth. Depth. Nothing goes deep into the heart. When the gospel reaches this heart, it may receive this even joyfully. They think it's great. They're enthusiastic. But when the season changes or tribulation or persecution comes or when the season is just no longer, when it's no longer a warm, glorious day for the word, they become cold and callous. Immediately they are gone, they wither and they die. You and I right now can picture individuals in our life who fit that picture. You and I know people who had heard the gospel they had heard the, the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and in all uh, seemingliness, they, they, they had received it. Uh, they were excited for this, this brief uh, moment of time. But then it didn't take long before you were asking each other, do you remember where um, old Billy Bob went? He used to, you know, for, the, you know, for like two months. He was, he was every 
time the church was open, he was there, but then he just literally vanishes because the seed never took root. He had just kind of this, this, this moment uh, experience, but there was not a true heart change. <laughs> it says, thus in this illustration, our Lord here is, is showing us the terrible danger of a shallow heart. A heart that does not want to evaluate and go deeper, but is always living on the surface, always relating to the event of the moment and concerned only with that. The devil took care of this first kind of man, but the flesh takes care of this second. We say all the time we have three enemies. We have Satan, we have the world, and we have our own flesh. And, and I will say this regularly, that I'm actually more concerned about my own flesh than I am the devil most of the time. Because I know what I'm capable of. And so I need to daily be in God's word. And it says the emotional seasons of life will make it very difficult for this person to receive the word and ultimately have his heart changed. Listen to this um, quote by George Whitfield, <laughs> directly pertaining to these folks. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, I am glad you know when persons are justified. It is a lesson that I have not yet learned. There are so many stony ground hearers who receive the word with joy that I have determined to suspend my judgment till I know the tree by its fruits. That makes me so cautious now, which I was not 30 years ago, of dubbing converts too soon. I love now to wait a little and see if people bring forth fruit. For there are so many blossoms which March winds you know blow away that I cannot believe they are converts till I see fruit brought back. It will never do a sincere soul any harm. Now, Whitfield is arguably one of the greatest evangelists to ever step foot on our soil. He was, uh, in many cases, one of the, uh, the leaders of the first great awakening uh, that struck the colonies here. And hundreds and thousands of people uh, responded to Christ at Whitfield's preaching. If you ever get a chance to study, Whitfield's a remarkable study. Uh, Whitfield, early on, it says that when he was looking for places to preach, he was in Bristol, not Virginia, uh, the one in England. You've got to learn your geography around here. But you know almost everything in the state of Virginia is just named after England, right? You know, Richmond, there's a Richmond. You know, right? Okay, okay. Make sure you get all that. So Whitfield would go to the, the coal mines, and he would just stand outside, and he would proclaim the gospel to these men who would be coming out of the coal mines. And, and history records that these men would come out, I mean, covered in soot. And he said, and they said you could just see, though, in so many of their faces, you would see these streaks down the side of their faces in the coal. And these grown men, these men that had been dealing in the mines for, for hours and hours, were, were coming under conviction of the Holy Spirit and surrendering their life to Jesus Christ. And it, it, it radically changed uh, these communities throughout England. And ultimately, Whitfield uh, would set sail. I think I may be off a little bit, but I'm pretty close. I think he made seven voyages across the Atlantic uh, to, the, to the new country. All share the gospel. But notice what he talks about here is that he waited to determine if they were true converts because he wanted to see, were, was there any fruit? There's a lot of people who will uh, profess Christ but they've never been possessed by Christ. They can speak of Christ, but there's no evidence of Christ in them. 
And Whitfield warns us here. Matter of fact, Billy Graham, and, and, and none of us would, would, would probably want to have too much to say against Billy Graham, but Billy Graham had a, a great concern for this, especially early in his ministry, uh, to the point that he had asked his dear brother, Dawson Troutman, uh, who founded Navigators, if he would come alongside and be willing to help during these crusades because he knew that a lot of people would be making decisions based off emotion, based off just uh, other people's reactions. And he wanted to make sure they had a way to kind of weed out and to make sure that those folks that had came forward, and you and I know people, and there may be people even here this morning, that, that you did come to faith at a, at a Billy Graham crusade or maybe even watching a Billy Graham crusade on the television. But the reality is, unless Christ does that work in your heart, and unless Christ it is who is calling you, then, 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 then you're not truly saved just because you made a profession or even said a prayer. You know, folks, the sinner's prayer doesn't save you. Christ saves you. And it is Christ's work that not only saves you, but also sustains you. And so be careful that we don't just have gone through the motions, but yet we've ultimately missed Christ in it. That's why we're very reluctant even, you, you realize Charles Finney started this whole idea of this altar call, uh, altar call only a little over 150 years ago. Uh, the original call was that when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you publicly proclaimed that profession at your baptism. That's what happened for 850 years. I don't know about you, but I think that's still the best way. Because if it was good enough for the early church, for the New Testament, if it's good enough for the church for 850 years, I think that's still good enough. Because we get so kind of caught up in trying to garner you know, these, these um, commitments from people, but they're not truly saved. And so most people today will say that even sitting in any given church on any given Sunday, that over 50 to 70% of the folks sitting in church are not regenerate. They've not been born again. That's scary. I mean, I want you to think about it. In this room this morning, that if 25% if of the people in this room were not truly regenerate, and they are living under a false pretense that they are saved, but they have been trying to earn their salvation. They've been trying to do things rather than trusting in the completed work of Jesus Christ. So that's those that fall on the rocky ground. Then we have those who fall amongst the thorns. And it says that those seeds fell and the thorns grew up and choked them and then they were they were swallowed up <clears throat> so that's what's happening so often we see today as well we see people who think that they can somehow live in the world and in the church but the world let me tell you has a stronger pull because there is no depth within you there's no depth there christ himself in matthew 6 says but seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you Further, we'll see in uh, the coming months in Matthew 16, he says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now, part of this whole idea, these uh, seeds that fell amongst the thorns, and they, it says they grew up and then they were choked out, is, is also where we kind of have this uh, terminology that we uh, have kind of made famous, but we shouldn't, of the carnal Christian. Because in all actuality, you really cannot truly be a carnal Christian. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus says you're either for me or against me. You can't live one foot in the world and one foot um, in Christ. It doesn't work that way. Those are, those are two competing natures. Now understand that we still, when we come to faith in Christ, we still have our old nature. 
our old sinful nature um, is still exist within us. But now when we have faith in Christ and the very Spirit of God comes in and dwells your heart, you are given a new nature, a nature that now desires the things of God, that it will desire to be in God's Word, that will actually desire, you will desire to be in fellowship with brothers and sisters. You will want to be in church. You don't want to miss church. You don't want to miss opportunities to be together. You're going to desire to be praying together. You're going to, you're going to understand that all you have is His. All these things take place take place but that nature is still constantly battling each other and that battle continues by the way probably right up until the day you die however that as that wage that that battle rages on between the flesh and the spirit the, the spirit slowly gains ground and the, and the spirit continues to gain ground as we walk in the lord and so sanctification is this process and sanctification is progressive uh, we are growing in our relationship with Christ so that we are being uh, more and more transformed into, uh, you know, into Christ. We, we will look more like Christ. We'll have a heart that has greater desires. And so this whole idea of being a carnal Christian is really, quite frankly, nonsense because it's the absolute worst representation someone can have for your Savior because you're saying that Christ is not enough. You're saying that Christ can't ultimately fulfill all that I need. You're saying that Christ is not better than, that there are things out here that are better. And then even out of this became um, this controversy that occurred in the late 80s, particularly uh, originated at Dallas Theological Seminary. A lot of great, great uh, men have come through Dallas Theological Seminary over the years. But this controversy arose because it, it became the idea that you can just simply have Christ as Savior, but He doesn't really need to be Lord of your life. In other words, you can just, you know, pray for fire insurance and you're good. You don't have need to have any evidence in your life, and so a lot went on. And, you know, as only John MacArthur can do, uh, it was like, this is crazy. Because if you profess Jesus as Lord, your, as Lord of your life, then, then that means He's in control. And so this whole idea that you can somehow live this dual life almost uh, became the source of debate. But that's why you will say that, yes, there, are, there is no works that we can do that, that has anything to do with salvation. None. None in our all. It is all Christ 100%. But we do then have, uh, if we make Jesus Lord of our life, he should be Lord of our life, then there's going to be evidence of that. Jesus in John chapter 6 says this. He said this, and he said this, that this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. We don't even come to Christ unless the Father draws you and I through the work of his Spirit, which means you cannot even make a decision for Christ if God the Father is not working through the Son and by the Spirit to draw him to, this, to himself. And that's what the Bible says. Amen? That's, that's an important thing to get. It says, after this, that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter, no Simon, always just the first to speak, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I mean, just think about those words. Many of his disciples, those who had this appearance, they were, they were men, women, who had, who had been following Christ around. But yet it says many turned back and no longer walked with him. It's one of the greatest tragedies in the church. 
are those people who you and I know and, 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 and we like to feel good about things. So we like to say, well, you know, they, you know, they made a decision 30 years ago. They were baptized here. We've seen zero evidence whatsoever that they're saved, but I feel pretty good about it. You've been deceived because that's not how this works. If Christ is in you, it's going to have a radical effect on who you are. We got to stop minimalizing this. Okay, it's not an easy believism. Jesus made it very clear. To follow Christ is going to cost you and I. He's not looking for converts. He's looking for disciples. And then look at Paul. <laughs> the Apostle Paul will say the same thing. His last letter, he's writing to his beloved, his beloved disciple Timothy, his son in the faith. And he writes in 2 Timothy 4.10, he says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This is the same Demas that in both Colossians and Philemon, Paul talks just uh, about his faithfulness, about his uh, being there with Paul. And here he is at the end of Paul's life, at the end of his earthly ministry, he says, Demas is in love with this present world and has deserted me. There's a lot of folks like that that are, are, are in and about that we know. How about 1 John 2? John, the beloved disciple, says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Folks, we got to stop sugarcoating this because right now you are giving people a one-way ticket to hell because you are allowing them to think that they are saved when there's been no evidence whatsoever in their life. Stop it. Stop it. Truly love them enough to tell them the truth. This is of eternal significance. There's no hope so. You can't, well, uh, you know, I hope when it's all said and done. You know, that, that's, that's, that's putting the effort on you. That's saying that ultimately I hope I have done enough or will do enough to, to get in. Or, or, or here's the other one, right? I'm just hoping to barely get If I can just get in. There's no just getting in. Christ died for us. He spilled his very last drop of blood for you and I to give us life. And there are a lot of people who proclaim Christ, but they do not know Christ. And even more importantly, Christ does not know them. That was Jesus' words. Depart from me, for I knew you not. It doesn't matter whether you know Christ. It matters is does he know you? Have you by faith trusted in Christ alone? The last soil is the good soil, the fruitful heart. And it says here that the, uh, the fruitful heart will produce some hundredfold, some tenfold, or some sixty and some thirty. Now, in this day and time, that a farmer, if a farmer were able to see a tenfold return on his crop, he would have done somersaults and skipped across the field. All right, to have a tenfold return would have been amazing. But notice Jesus here says that some were going to have a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. You know, and we're not going there today, but uh, you know the parable of the talents, and you know what what, what has been expected, more will be asked of. But this is the heart that receives gladly the seed of the gospel, and it bears fruit. The seed remains long enough to not only sprout and grow, but it produces more. 
Some of you may have a, a fruit tree, an apple tree, a peach tree, or whatever in your backyard, and, and it produces a, a, you know, a, a decent amount of fruit for you. But that's not it for the Christian life. We want to produce to where there is an orchard. We want to one day stand that we're part of an orchard. I mean, you go to you know, a, a place like Carter's Mountain or one of these uh, apple orchards, and you just, for as far as you can see, you see fruit trees. And what are they doing? They are, they are, there's abundant fruit. Everywhere you go, there's so much fruit. It's like it falls off the tree. It's laying on the ground. It's just, it's everywhere. But we want to be part of an orchard, not just a single tree. We want to see our lives reproduced more than, more than we could imagine that only Christ can do. Paul gives us a little bit of this uh, order uh, of coming to faith in Romans 8. <laughs> He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And I'm going to try to wrap this up here in just uh, in a few minutes. A few minutes. The first order is regeneration. You and I, must be regenerate. That is that we must have a new heart. All right, Our old heart is not even capable of actually receiving the seed. Our hearts are not. Because Paul says that our, that our, that our old life over in Ephesians chapter 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, to the greatest words in Scripture, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. That's what regeneration is, that you and I were dead people. We were spiritually dead. Last I checked, dead people don't talk. To us, I hope you're not talking to, or I hope you're not talking to dead people. Dead people don't talk; they're dead. Okay, you and I were spiritually dead, which means you and I do not even have within us the ability to receive that seed apart from the very Spirit of God working within us. Now, how exactly is this an instantaneous moment that God's Spirit starts to, uh, you know, call us? It, it literally works, it quickens our heart, and then we, by faith, trust in Jesus, right? I mean, it's probably, you know, it's right there like simultaneous, but the point is that unless Christ draws you by His Spirit, you can't be saved, so that's what the danger is with all these, you know, emotional responses when people are just, you know, they're all part of the experience, but there's no actual depth. There's no root. They've never truly trusted in Christ alone. And so we have to understand that regeneration is the first step. 
followed by justification, which is, again, a one-time act in which your unrighteousness, okay, Isaiah says in that same uh, first part of uh, Isaiah, that his righteousness is but filthy rags. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves, none. So we have nothing, nothing to offer God. Zero, less than zero. But Christ, he places his righteousness on you and I at the moment that we by faith trust in him. He places his righteousness on us and he takes our sin and he places it on himself. And that's the double imputation that takes place at the very act of justification. And then we will spend the rest of our life in this process called sanctification, which is to be set apart, where we're being conformed more and more and more into the image of Christ. And it's a progressive sanctification. And sometimes you may feel like it's two steps forwards and one step back and two steps forward and one step back. But are you progressing? Are you making those steps? Because you can't ever, as a Christian, stop growing. You cannot do that. If Christ is in you, the Spirit of God is going to be at work in and through you and constantly working to draw you to Himself. And that takes us all the way to the point of glorification, which is the day you close your eyes for the last time and you wake up and you see the face of Jesus. And then you are glorified. That's the steps. We'll, we'll, we'll get into a little bit more of that probably next week. I want to go through John 3 and Nicodemus and even a little bit more and further down in John. But you and I, you know, what soil are you? What soil are you? Maybe you had that experience that you uh, made a decision and, and, and yet you know there's, just, there's never been any change. Then, then I'm going to say that you're probably not saved. And that's the most loving thing I can say to you. That is the most loving thing you can say to somebody. That you're not genuinely converted. Because to be saved means that, that there's going to be a change in you and I. Maybe for some it's slower than others, but there's going to be a change. There's going to be some level of evidence. There's going to be fruit. Maybe it's just a tiny bit of fruit. It's just starting to bloom. But over time it'll, it'll, it'll ripen and it'll be more and more and more. But if there's no fruit and the limbs of your tree are barren, then I would say you're probably not genuinely saved. And the fact that God has you this morning, could very, here this morning, could very well be because He is the one drawing you this morning, that He is quickening your heart, that He is drawing you to Himself. And I would encourage you today that you would let somebody know if today is the day that you need to trust Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone, to God be the glory alone. That was the cry of the Reformation because they had gotten away from the truth of Scripture. They were trying to earn their salvation. That's what was going on in the, in the dark ages for, for the few that even were connected. So I want to encourage you. And then yet public proclamation is, is you professing faith in Christ publicly through baptism. We've got a baptism coming up in a, about five or six weeks. And it's going to be a great, great time that we celebrate those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And for others, I encourage you, we've got our partnership luncheon today. And we're going to be uh, encouraging anyone that wants to come and hang out with us for a little while with that. You can come and do that. And then over the next three Sundays, we're going to be walking through a partnership class. And so that you understand, we're going to walk through these exact things. We're going to talk about what salvation is. We're going to talk about what baptism is. Then we're going to talk about doctrinal truths. We're going to talk about regeneration. We're going to talk about justification. We're going to talk about sanctification. We're going to talk about glorification. By the way, you should know those words. 
If you've been a Christian for any time, you should know those words, not, oh, I'm not into those big words. Well, then you're not really into Christ, and you're not into the Bible, because that's all in the Bible, which just shows you don't spend any time in the Bible if you say, I don't, wanna, I don't need to know this. No, we do need. That's why the world is so uh, pressing into the church, because the church is not getting into the world with the gospel, knowing what we believe, to be able to share with people the truth so when they come and ask us, we don't cower and run. We know the truth and we stand on the truth and the Spirit of God is the truth. So I encourage you this morning, what soil are you and what steps do you need to take? Father, we thank you for your precious word that, God, it is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And it never changes, Father. And as we are here today, even on this uh, day that we celebrate the sanctity of human life, that, God, all life is precious and that we need to be a voice for the unborn, but we need to be a voice for those who have not been reborn. For every one of us knows men, women, children that have not placed their faith in Christ. And many have never heard the gospel. They've not heard the good news, Father. We cannot save them, but we can simply present the truth. And God, we pray and beg that if your spirit would draw them, that they would, by faith, receive the, the word of God, the truth of the gospel, and that they would be saved. And then we would walk with them and help them as they would grow in Christ and that they in turn would reproduce. And Father, that there may be our own children or they may be friends that God, we would just simply be privileged to, to be there when God, you draw them and save them. That God, we will see them far outrun us and produce hundreds of folds more than even we. But Father, may we be faithful. That's all you call us to do is to be faithful with what you've given us. And Father, you've given us the very breath we breathe that we can be a voice, that we can share the good news. So Father, we pray that you would draw men, women, and children to yourself. That God, your word declares that, that Father, if the, if the Father draws them to the Son, they can be saved. So Father, we give you all that we have. Pray that you would be glorified and honored in all we do. And we pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.